You talk about credibility. A lieutenant colonel with 20 years of military service, listen to what he has to say. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. In all human cultures and times, we celebrate new births. In springtime, we take joy in the new flowers popping up, injecting their amazing bright colors into the world. Though all such beginnings, by definition, contain an inevitable decline, we turn away from that. But like plants and all living things, as Oswald Spengler, the German intellectual whose life spanned the glorious peaks of the late 19th century until the tragic depths of Hitlerism, wrote in the decline of the West in the wake of the First World War that cultures are indeed like a plant. Each goes through the appointed course of youth, maturity, and decline. Many of his predictions have indeed come true. His organic theory of history held that cultures and civilizations have predictable, deterministic lifespans. Our guest today, from his unique vantage point, retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, William Astori, writes, History appears to confirm that empires in their dying stages do exactly that. They exalt violence, continue to pursue war, and insist on their own greatness until their fall uh, can neither be denied nor reversed. And that, as an iron curtain descends on a failing American imperial state, one thing we won't be able to say is that we weren't warned. But before we get too depressed, let's remember that all human cultures do celebrate hope and renewal, and that as the little-known but exceptionally valuable book, The Culture of Defeat, on National Trauma, Mourning, and Recovery by the recently departed Wolfgang Schievelbusch, reminds us there is recovery in the various international efforts to meet climate change. Loss and learning can yield better arrangements. If we just learn. Well, enough from me. In his essay on Tom Dispatch, our guest William Astori looks into what it was in the 2008 candidate that Obama saw in Americans clinging to guns and religion, and why our guest William Astori calls this end stage, the end stage of American empire. Thank you so much for being with us again, Bill. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me, Bert. Retired Lieutenant Colonel William Astori served in the U.S. Air Force for 20 years, retiring in 2005. He's a senior fellow at the Eisenhower Media Network an organization of critical veteran military and national security professionals. You should pay attention to that. His personal substack is Bracing Views. He was a professor of history and has written extensively for Tom Dispatch, Truthout, History News Network, Alternate, Salon, Antiwar.com, and Huffington Post, among other sites. He earned a PhD from the University of Oxford, all right, I'm impressed. He has taught at the Air Force Academy, the Naval Postgraduate School, and the Pennsylvania College of Technology. As Tom Engelhart, host of Tom Dispatch, perceptively notes, Donald Trump, quote, is the first person to run openly and without apology in a platform of American decline. No other politician would admit that America was no longer great. In noting Americans are experienced national and imperial decline, our guest Bill Astori asks, can America save itself? Is this country as presently constituted even worth saving? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, as a left-leaning patriot, I have never given up on the aspirations expressed in our new founding after the Civil War. 
Equal justice, what a concept. A, a country that serves the common good. Yeah, I'm not giving up on that. Militaristic, nationalistic imperialism is not only not necessary, it is inherently destructive of that goal. But boy, we've been on that course for a long time. As with so many millions of patriots who signed up to defend America, Bill, you joined America's Cold War military, as you say, to protect our lamp of liberty. Tell us, please, why you would say that and how you, as a retired colonel, learned that the sky is anything but the limit. Yes, I did join uh, the military in 1985. Of course, I was at the, the height of the uh, Cold War uh, under uh, President uh, Ronald Reagan. This was when uh, Reagan had recently denounced the uh, Soviet Union as, as an evil empire. Uh, and I certainly believed back then that... Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I yes, exactly, yeah. I mean, things things were things seemed more clear back then, Bert. That <laughs> that uh, we that we had a rival, uh, the Soviet Union. That the Soviet Union had had uh, uh, erected its own iron curtain at, at the end of uh, World War II, and that and that we believed. That certainly, I believed as a 22 year old, uh, just graduated from college, gone through ROTC. That the Soviet Union had to be defeated, and, and that America stood for democracy, uh, and to a certain extent, and, and I knew, as as I said, as I say in my article, I obviously knew that America wasn't perfect. That that we had this long legacy of slavery, uh, that we fought a civil war over it, and lost over six hundred thousand Americans uh, in that civil war in the nineteenth century. Uh, that we'd also committed what really can only be termed a genocide against Native Americans yes. uh, in the 19th century. Uh, and so and so I knew all that. I, I knew that America had a dark side, but I knew, or at least I thought I knew, that there were darker sides out there. Uh, but when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991 and we heard about a new world order and a peace dividend, well, I, I was optimistic, as I'm sure you were. Yeah. Uh, but then, But then very quickly... Uh, the, the, you know, the military industrial congressional complex moved to ensure uh, that we would continue fighting wars, whether it be in Iraq or, or Afghanistan or a war against terror uh, or now a, a so-called new Cold War uh, against Russia uh, and China. Uh, so there's been no peace dividend. There's, there's only been war and more war. Uh, and that made me reflect as an officer and as a retired officer, that obviously something is is very rotten uh, in, in America. Yeah, and, and neither of us obviously has given up on the aspirations of, of, of what we, you know, what Lincoln talked about and what, and what we can still be. What is the attraction of what you call a victory culture? And Lord knows, it, a lot of people are attracted to a victory culture. In what ways does the word folly so often proved to be the clearly unintended result. Yeah, I I, I remember uh, I remember a movie Stripes, I think, with Bill oh, Murray. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, and and I can't I can't remember the exact quote, but Bill Murray stands up and says something like, "Hey, we're nine and one. It's something like that, <laughs> meaning meaning that America has won every war except for Vietnam uh, when when that movie was made. Uh, and so we, we do have, uh, and, and, and the term victory culture is, 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 of course, I borrowed that from Tom Englehart's book uh -huh. uh, about, about our victory culture. Uh, 
uh, although his book is called The End of Victory Culture, mm. uh, because what, what we've witnessed, really, uh, I think you could argue since since World War II, uh, is, a, is a series of lost wars. Uh, uh, you know, certainly the Korean War, I guess you could argue, is is uh was a draw a stalemate so mm-hmm. to speak i mean this there's still still just an armistice we haven't signed a peace treaty uh the vietnam was obviously a disaster uh for the united states and, and even more so for the peoples of uh, southeast asia yeah uh and on and on from iraq afghanistan and, and so on so but but what's ironic about this or, or paradoxical perhaps is that even as Americans chant USA, USA, number one, mm-hmm. and we see ourselves as the exceptional nation, you know, how uh, we nevertheless have, to put it in sports terms, we have very much a losing record. Uh, we're, in, we're in basement of, of our division, so to speak. We keep losing. Uh, and yet we have a culture that says that, that we are a land of heroes uh, and, and a land of, of, of victory. Uh, and that is something that is is quite disturbing, and and I think that's partly, partly in a strange way, uh, the allure of Donald Trump, because as mm-hmm. as you said in your introduction, Donald Trump came up with the 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 slogan, you know, "Make America Great Again," which suggests that America right. is no longer great. Right. Uh, and and that is something that, you know, for example, his his rival there, Hillary Clinton, you know, she tried to argue that, you know, how dare how dare Mr. Trump say that America is not great? Of course, America is still great. Uh, and that is that is something that our politicians try to push on us. But the average American, uh, we, we know, we know that America faces deep problems. We, we see homeless people in the street. We see uh, uh, bankruptcies and, 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 and all the problems that we all know about. Uh, and so, you know, this is why, you know, I, I'm, I'm arguing in my article that, that, what what we're beginning to see in the United States is is the signs of uh, of a failed and decaying uh, empire, mm-hmm. and the question is, as 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 you know, Bert, is is whether or not Oswald Spengler was right, uh, and our death is inevitable, in, inevitable, followed by some kind of a rebirth, or whether we can step in and do some kind of as a people form a recovery, uh, some kind of national renewal. Uh, a restoration of democracy. And I think that's what you and I are trying to fight for. Mm, And maybe it has to be something a bit different. Maybe, you know, I mean, we have these priorities about, you know, if there are problems at home, well, just as as a lot of people who became president know, oh, just have a war, you know, that'll unite the country. Uh, And it's a way to get attention off of you know the people in the streets and and the environmental destruction and things like that so it looks you know it's so nice to to be the tough guy to be you know the biggest on the block or whatever but mm, it ain't working anymore it's just it's just plain not and I, I i don't know it's history hasn't gone far enough yet but i've i've thought that america's empire peaked around 1967 that's when it started to go i think downhill in terms of empire there's been a powerful reaction against the so-called vietnam syndrome that we don't want to learn we instead of learning the incredibly obvious uh, and avoiding further military adventures in countries where we're really not wanted, my tax dollars and yours pay for nearly 800 military bases around the world. 
And I find it fascinating. You know, we just had this uh, debt ceiling debate, and they they wanted to cut everything except they wouldn't even touch the military budget. It's sacrosanct. The mindset, you know, that supports and insists on ever more money for the military, you can't give them enough money. You just can't. Can be seen in the display of militarism uh, has it's much more obvious since our defeat in Vietnam in 1975. Look at the sporting events. I I don't remember. I mean, I've been around a pretty long time. Uh, sporting events didn't used to always have to have a celebration of the military. My question is, is this insertion of a military power, bases all over the world, how does that affect the host nations, and does it serve to increase our national security, these bases everywhere? Uh, well, uh, I'll answer the second question first, sure. and, and that is, and, and that, is that, it, that, it, that it does not uh, ensure uh, our, our national security. I, I believe it actually weakens our national security because, because as you said, uh, we have roughly 750 to 800 bases around the world, and all of those bases uh, are our potential vulnerabilities. Uh, there, there are places where America, American soldiers, American troops could be uh, attacked. Uh, but that said, obviously, the military builds those bases not because they're thinking of vulnerability. They're, they're thinking of them as launching points for, for global attacks. Uh, and this is something we need to remind ourselves as, Amer as Americans, that, that our, our, our military, and I was in the Air Force for 20 years, our vision, and we say this openly, is global reach, uh, global power, uh, and global dominance. Yes. We we are we are the we are the only country in the world uh, that sees uh, its vision. Its vision is to dominate everywhere, and of course, we call that full spectrum dominance. Mm. Uh, and you know, not only not only the Earth. Uh, but, of course, we have a space force now, a separate service that's supposed to dominate the heavens. Mm -hmm. And we have a cyber, you know, we have a cyber cyber force that 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 is supposed to dominate the the virtual realm. So that that's our vision as as a country, uh, that the only way that we can be safe uh, is to be dominant uh, everywhere. Mm. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, that that simply isn't true, because when, when you look at. You know, when was the last time America was truly attacked by another country? Uh, you have to go back to the Japanese yes. uh, in, in World War II at Pearl Harbor. Now, of course, you know, 9-11 happened, but, but that was a terrorist attack, uh, not, not by one particular uh, country. And mm -hmm. it should have been handled mainly as, as a police action. But, of course, what happened was Bush Cheney took the 9-11 attack as an opportunity, their failure to protect the country became an opportunity for them to launch the wars they wanted to launch uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, so now with you, the, other, the other part of your question uh, is how the presence of our bases uh, affect the host countries. Yeah. Uh, and certainly, as you know, uh, Chalmers Johnson wrote about this, uh, in particular uh, about Okinawa, where, where the Americans have uh, an extensive series of military bases, Marine Corps bases, uh, there have been, uh, you know, exploitation of of uh, Okinawans, the rape of Okinawans. Uh, I read an interesting article not long ago about the American presence in in Korea, 
uh, and the fact that the Korean troops, uh, American troops, have been in Korea uh, going on uh, about 70 years mm. now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not, not that the presence has been universally a bad one, uh, but when American troops come, uh, certain things follow. Uh, and certainly mm-hmm. uh, prostitution, prostitution, drugs, <laughs> you know, tattoo parlors, um, you know, all kinds of things. So I, I would not say I would not say the presence of, of American bases has been a benign one. Uh, quite the contrary. And, and of course, the other part of it is wherever you have a military base, there tends to be environmental pollution. Uh, and and so that's yeah, another yeah. factor. Yeah. yeah. Good point, because, I mean, as you look at the virtually every, uh, you know, piece of military equipment, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of pollution that comes with that, but people don't even talk about that at all. And you point, and by the way, for those people who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm pleased to say our guest today is retired Lieutenant Colonel William Astori. We're talking about uh, an article he's written in Tom Dispatch, which I recommend, called The End Stage of American Empire. You know, and, and I forget who said you can either have a republic or an empire, but you can't have both. I, I, maybe you know, I don't. But uh, I, I like a republic myself, republic. But the defense budget is like $886 billion now as part of the bipartisan debt deal between McCarthy and Biden. You say it guarantees... One thing, a speedier fall for the American empire. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty strong statement. And, you know, the intent of that unfathomable expenditure is to strengthen us, to ensure our security, to protect us from the bad guys over there. But you say such pouring of resources into one place, in your words, saps America's physical and mental reserves, as past wars did the reserves of previous empires throughout history. And you say, think of the short-lived Napoleonic Empire, for example. And pardon my ignorance, I don't know what uh, much about the Napoleonic Empire and what that, what happened there, what that may imply now. Right. Well, well, no, you know, the the, the French Revolution uh, came, and and uh, obviously the French Revolution at the end of the uh, 18th century uh, came soon after the American Revolution and had some of the same high ideals. So the French talked about liberty, equality, and fraternity, or, yes. or brotherhood. Uh, but of course, what happened was was a disruption of the French Revolution led to the rise of, of Napoleon and, and a military regime. And Napoleon was a conqueror, uh, and he conquered uh, most of uh, Europe uh, in in the uh, early uh, 19th century. Uh, most people, when they think of Napoleon, if they think of anything, uh, they probably think of, of his ill-fated uh, invasion of Russia uh, in in 1812 that ultimately led to the uh, to the demise of the Napoleonic Empire at Waterloo uh, in 1815. But basically, what what you know the French uh, the, the sad thing is is that is that the French look back on this uh, as a time of great glory, mm. a military glory for themselves. Uh, that you know, and then the, Napoleon is is sort of entombed uh, in in Paris in in a in a quite a spectacular way. So, I mean, this is sort of human nature. We mm. we look back on we look back on you know our you know heroes. So so for us, it, we, we might idolize George Washington or Ulysses S. Grant, or or maybe Eisenhower or General Patton from mm. from World War II. But you know, not not 
not to be trite, but to but to cite Yoda, the Jedi Master. You know, wars wars not make one great. Uh, there there's greatness to be achieved outside of of war. What happened with Napoleon is, you know, he 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 conquered briefly a huge amount of territory in Europe, uh, and then was unable to to hold on to it because he created so many other uh, uh, enemies. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, you know, something something similar happened with with the Germans in, in World War One and World War Two. Uh, they 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 became very militaristic. Uh, they they conquered quite a bit of territory, uh, but then created enemies, you know, coalitions of people, other countries that came together to to defeat them. Military conquest uh, comes at an enormous cost. Uh, and and we are, we're paying it now as 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 a nation, uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, uh, even as uh, uh, Biden and McCarthy were 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 cutting spending in some places, mm-hmm. uh, they were ramping up uh, military spending so that so that the the the, the Pentagon budget for for next fiscal year it approaches nine hundred billion dollars. Uh, so it's higher, not lower, uh, even even though we ended the war. Biden ended the war in Afghanistan. Yeah. And that war was that war was costing America almost 50 billion dollars a year. So that war is over. Uh, and what happened? The military budget went up 50 billion dollars. So I ask everyone, how is that possible? How is hmm. it possible that you end the war? And military spending actually goes up. That speaks to the power of what Eisenhower warned us about in 1961, the power of the military-industrial complex to dictate how we uh, spend our money and even to a certain extent how we live our lives now. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how the the reverence for all things military that we see at at sporting events and, you know, in in the budget... uh, discussions you couldn't you, you, one couldn't even talk about uh, dare i say cutting back on the military you just have to go more and more and more so we're spending unbelievable amounts of money making enemies around the world what could be a better strategy than that one of the problems of course in the united states and we want to be safe what does safe mean you know safe at home peace at home there's a little bit of gun violence it's it's unbelievable. This this focus on militarization, on all things military. I don't know if there's a connection. Do you think there, this focus on militarization is is part of the problem with regard to uh, this insane gun violence? I think so. Uh, I what what we have uh, unfortunately is a, almost a, a, an elevation or even mm. valorization of violence in our society. And, and, and we, see this, we see this every day. I mean, we've, we've almost, almost become almost blasé about mass shootings now. Yeah. I mean, there, there, so many of them happen that you know, maybe they make headlines for a day or two, but then they disappear. And, and then in a few days, there's, there's another mass shooting somewhere. Uh, one thing that that has vexes me uh, as a you know I was I was a, I was a gun owner I you know I grew up my my best friend was a, a member of the uh, NRA and uh, and a hunter uh, and I, I fired all types of firearms mm-hmm. but you know back when I was growing up in the 1970s 
you know, what you had uh, was, you know, some people had maybe some pistols for, for home defense, uh, and they had rifles and shotguns for, for hunting, deer hunting and bird hunting, but nobody had and nobody wanted assault rifles. You know, nobody wanted to carry around an, an M16 or an AK-47 or an AR-15. Uh, it's, it's only in the last 20 to 30 years or so that these military-style firearms right. have been marketed to the American people. Uh, and they're not, even, they're not even really good weapons for, for home defense. Uh, they're, they're designed to kill uh, the, because they're military weapons, and they're designed to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible. Uh, so, so this is, you know, part. This is certainly part of the problem, and, and another part of the problem is just you know, we we send our troops overseas. Well, well, we train them, you know, we we train them to be able to kill. Yeah, uh, and and that's that's about the worst thing. Maybe, maybe that is a necessity for for self defense. You know, you need a military uh, to. Certainly, you need some kind of training so that so that military can be effective in a, in times of war. But you have to realize that the, the the cost of that there's a very high cost of of turning troops into into killers. Uh, and it's you know when they come home, you know when they come home when they come home from war, assuming that they're not wounded in body, uh, they are often wounded in in their minds. Uh, you know, they, they come home having faced uh, the chaos and violence overseas, uh, and, and they tend to bring that with them when they come back home. Uh, and, you know, that is another part uh, of the problem. Uh, and, then, and then I guess another aspect is just this idea that, that we see violence in Americans. Uh, we see violence as certainly we see it as solutions uh, to to issues overseas, so that we have a similar attitude here at home. That that I mean, you could talk about the war in Ukraine, for example. We seem to think the only solution there is to send as as much weaponry as possible to Ukraine, so that they can fight and kill Russians. Uh, we don't we don't support, or we haven't yet supported in any significant way diplomacy. Uh, that kind of an attitude where, you know, sh- sort of shoot first, ask questions later, or shoot first, talk later, uh, is something we see now to a certain extent with the American uh, police forces. And I say that, you know, I'm, a, I'm in my family, uh, my, my, uh, my dad, my, my brothers uh, were, my brother, brother-in-law were firefighters. I have, you know, members of my family are on the police force. Uh, so, but we, we have police forces now that, as we know, uh, uh, number one, they're scared. Police are scared because it, a lot of people are carrying guns. Yeah, big uh, and, and, but, but number two, uh, there's an attitude among the police that, that, that just, I mean, some police are ex-military and they tend to look at the American people possibly as the enemy. Uh, and, and so, so we've imported these kinds of, uh, we've exported violence overseas and then sort of imported the, 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 the blowback from that. Wow, the militarization of police is, uh, yeah, li- more than a little bit concerning, I, I, I have to say. Um, and it does appear that you and I are both both fascinated by the madness and mysteries of the First World War. Uh, the book by uh, Scheibelbusch, or is it maybe Scheibelbusch, I'm not sure, referenced earlier, focuses uh, on the unique and important lessons learned by defeated nations. But then again, the winners of that massive catastrophe 
known as the First World War. The the moral injury that began then, you know, where, where good people, good, you know, kids go out and are taught to kill, and then they, they come back here and it's like, Whoa, that's, you know, it's worse than PTSD. It's, there's, there's something really hard. In what ways are the winners, were the winners of World War I actually weakened? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, a, a, good, a good example is France. Um, when, yes. we think, when, we think of, when we think of World War I, uh, I mean, the French, the French paid an, an enormous price for, for, for winning uh, World War I. They, they lost uh, roughly uh, one million men. Uh, in defeating the, the Kaiser's uh, empire, the, sec- the so-called Second Reich, uh, and and you know the, the the price the price they paid was 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 dear, uh, and and so you know, in the aftermath of World War One, uh, you know the French basically said you know we 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 do not want to fight you know that kind of of war uh, again where we have to take the offense uh, against uh, uh, Germany. Uh, and so they, of course, they they built the Maginot Line, yeah. you know, defensive. They they built you know defensive fortifications. Uh, in 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 the meantime, uh, you know, they uh, the France France was uh, uh, divided uh, politically, uh, and when they faced the, uh, the 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 Third Reich, the rise of the Third Reich, uh, again they were they were reluctant to, uh, and I don't blame them yeah. uh, for for fighting another war uh, until, of course. Uh, 1940 came. Uh, you know the Germans uh, surprised them uh, and and were able to defeat them fairly readily. Uh, because ultimately, I think more than any reason, because the French were demoralized and divided still uh, from World War One, even though they were uh, the victors uh, of of that war. And it's certainly true that uh, the French did not forget 1871 when, you know, in the Franco-Prussian War, they were, uh, can I say this, pissed. They were really angry, and they held that grudge for a long time uh, against uh, the Germans. And and, uh, they uh, taught their kids, yeah, there's going to be war. This is before the First World War that they taught their kids, we're going to have to go to war uh, with Germany. And so by the time... World War II came around, yeah, I think obviously they they had quite enough. And I wonder, you know, there's human nature itself. And where if you get beat up, you don't forget that. It is not a pleasant experience. Your anger hardly dissipates. And people react, uh, you know, impulsively oftentimes. And that, that... you know the people who were who were deemed to be losers. Uh, <clears throat> boy, they after World War One there was uh, there's some amazing, uh, uh, incredible violence among themselves, and uh, what happened to the the so-called losers. The the familiar mindset of settling conflicts through war uh, affects actual security on the nation and the freedom of its of its citizens. Uh, the idea of <clears throat> that that we need to settle conflicts through war. Uh, the, the the people who live in that country, uh, what happens to them? You know, I think I, I think the uh, you know obviously the 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 danger now. We talk about setting settling conflicts through war. I mean, what what worries me uh, is is the obvious point that that I mean again you know let's 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 move ahead to the 
the, the, sure. the present day where where we have the Russia Ukraine war. Mm. Uh, there there's there's an attitude in, in our country that that well obviously Ukraine must win uh, and and Russia and Putin uh, must lose uh, and and is that necessarily the case right. uh, especially especially if you're talking about uh, you're taking on a country like Russia that has nuclear weapons. I mean, what 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 will be the price of victory? You know, how how do you define mm-hmm. it? Uh, that's why that's why the you know I, I'm part as you mentioned I'm part of the Eisenhower Media Network, and we actually paid for a full page ad in in the New York Times, uh, advocating for a a much more diplomatic approach uh-huh. to to settling you know the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And just just speaking as a as a human being, you know, yes, you know, I I think Putin was wrong to invade. Uh, he was definitely in the wrong to invade Ukraine. You know, I would like to see uh, Ukraine win on, on some terms, but I what I want more than else is for the war to end. You know, I want yeah. I want Ukrainians to stop killing Russians and Russians to stop killing yeah. Ukrainians. And I'm also worried about the potential escalation and expansion of that war we know from history that that there are always accidents happening that that lead to escalatory violence i mean again going back to world war one who knew that the assassination of the archduke franz ferdinand in 1914 uh you know this this tawdry little little affair in the balkans was going to lead to the deaths of something like 10 million, almost mm-hmm. 10 million soldiers mm-hmm. uh, in, in World War One, and then produce a sequel, World War Two, mm-hmm. that was going to lead to the death of something like 75 million people around the world. So you don't know what, what event might lead to uh, an escalatory cycle of violence. Uh, and that's one of the big reasons why I want to see you know, a lot less emphasis on, you know, yeah, we got to we got to overthrow Putin and we got to send more weapons to Ukraine and so on. It's like, well, if we overthrow if we overthrow Putin, what then? What happens to Russia? What happens to its nuclear weapons? You know, these, these are questions we should be asking ourselves and thinking deeply about. Absolutely, and and people have compared uh, what's going on now in Russia and Ukraine with the First World War. I mean, when when Austria Hungary uh, attacked Serbia and gave you know and just decided, yeah, we're going to make war on Serbia. I, I don't think they expected what happened. <laughs> you know, they thought they were just going to teach Serbia a lesson: don't try to become uh, separate from from us. We're your big boss. But, exactly. Uh, and and now you know there's. There's crime here, there. You know, there, I, I, I couldn't agree more that there has to be, you know, this could get way out of control. I mean, so many people, so much incredible destruction, babies and lost lives. Oh, my God. There's got to be some sort of other way other than, mili- you know, just plain old-fashioned military victory and defeating Putin. And even if, if Putin were defeated, then what? You know, I mean, the Soviet Union was taken down. And, and did that produce something better? think so. I don't know. Anyway, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with uh, a lieutenant, retired Lieutenant Colonel William Astori, uh, who's written a uh, very interesting article in uh, Tom uh, Dispatch, The End Stage of American Empire. We're talking about militarism in general. And he is also with the uh, 
what's it called? The Eisenhower Media Network. Very interesting. Yeah, that's. And tell us yeah. who, who who is that? What is that about? The Eisenhower Media Network. We founded that. People like uh, retired Major Danny Sherson. Oh yeah. Uh, who you you've probably heard of. Um, oh, I've had him on uh, Matthew, you know, yeah, Matthew Matthew Ho, uh, who uh, you know courageously. He's a uh, Marine Corps uh, veteran who uh, joined the uh, State Department and then courageously uh, resigned from the State Department in 2009 mm. in, in protest against Obama's uh, worthless uh, surge uh, in, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, Colleen Raleigh, who's an uh, ex-FBI agent, uh, you know, she helped. She tried to warn. Uh, about the the nine eleven attacks, mm. uh, and and several other of us. Uh, we're we're just uh, mostly mostly uh, Larry Wilkerson, uh, oh, who worked with uh, guy, yeah. Colin Colin Powell, uh, and you know we're we're you know mostly retired uh, uh, defense or government professionals who who want to seek a, a, a different path. Yeah, uh, you know we don't we don't think that that constant wars and full spectrum dominance and mm. colossal defense budgets, really war budgets, it's war budgets, not defense budgets. Right. Uh, you know, we, we just don't think that this is the right way for uh, America to, to move uh, forward. And we take our inspiration from, of course, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, who, you know, famously said that, that if we continue to produce uh, weapons uh, and, and export them, uh, basically, we're 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 going to create hum- humanity hanging from uh, a cross of iron. You know, he said that in 1953. Oh, so oh. that was 70 years ago. Uh, I know it's it, it's the, the the his warning about the military right. industrial complex is is more famous, but but his cross of iron speech from 1953 was was maybe I think his most evocative warning, uh, and yet. You you hardly ever hear uh, that speech. Of course, the other the other anniversary that that approaches is is the uh, is the or maybe it's just about now is the 60th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's peace speech. Yes, uh, in 1963. Yes, June 10th. Uh, and so yeah, so I urge I urge everyone who's listening if you if you haven't if you haven't read Eisenhower's Cross of Iron speech from I 1953 will. or uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Eisenhower, and then JFK's peace speech from 1963. Yeah. Uh, please do read those, listen to those, and then reflect on the fact that we never hear any American president nowadays talk in terms remotely like that. All we hear from presidents now is war and more war. Mm. We never hear anything about diplomacy and peace and compromise and, and and any of that, all we hear about is that Americans are the, you know, the greatest yeah, people. Yeah. We have the number one military in the world. Right. Uh, and we, we boast about this as if it's something to be proud of. When James Madison told us, as we, you know, one of our great founders, he said that a large standing military and constant warfare is anathema to democracy. You cannot have a democracy. You cannot have a republic right. where there's a large standing army and constant wars. And that's why we don't have a republic anymore. We have an empire, and mm-hmm. it's dying. Mm. And that's the thing about the Eisenhower Media Network. You guys know what you're talking about. You're, dare I say, unimpeachable. 
you've been there, you've seen it. Uh, it you know, this is this is important and the credibility. Uh, and uh, yeah, I wish more people would listen instead of having you know this this need to look macho. It's so bizarre. I was going to say some other words that I probably shouldn't say in the radio. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Trump. As you say, Trump unwittingly reinforced the notion that America was no longer great. And you point out with your knowledge of history, another man obsessed with looking macho like so many apparently insecure Republican leaders these days. Josh Hawley, are you listening? Uh-huh. Sought to force the birth of a new Rome. He Mussolini wanted to, I don't know if he's ever said this, make Rome great again. Tell us, please, about any of the parallels there. Right. Well, I no, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I've written about this myself. Where we, you know, right after nine eleven, you you had the you know Bush Cheney administration. You had these uh, you know these people running around talking about putting on their big boy pants uh, and and looking tough. Right. Uh, and this is this is um this is and certainly when you, when you look at George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, uh, of course. You know what's what's deeply frustrating as a retired military officer is that um, you know Dick Cheney, uh, who who uh, actually shot his hunting partner and couldn't <laughs> even control his own he couldn't even control his own shotgun. Uh, you know he he avoided the draft. Uh, he avoided the draft in, in Vietnam, uh, saying basically he had he had um, higher priorities, better things to do, and and. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and uh, you know, George W. Bush used his uh, family connections uh, in, and served briefly, I think, in the Texas-era National Guard. Uh, nothing, nothing dishonorable about that, but right. that was obviously a, a well-connected uh, guy, young guy, finding a way out of, uh, mm-hmm. of military service. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not saying I want, you know, I don't want to return to the draft, and I'm not, and I'm not saying serving in the military is... Uh, is, is a great thing necessarily, but but it, it strikes me that many of the many of the men who are posing as macho mm-hmm. are are ones who, when they were younger, uh, avoided military service and and wanted you know nothing to do with actually putting their 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 asses at the front line, uh, and so and so I think that's part of it. You know, I, I think part of the whole macho. Yeah. Uh, um, is is that they 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 it's it's their own personal inadequacies I guess you would say <laughs> exactly um, uh, so, I know and and beating it you know and like being so angry and making war on LGBTQ people excuse me why who cares yeah that that really <laughs> takes a tremendous amount of courage doesn't it oh God it's unbelievable it just, and and some of the phrases that that you talk about uh, you know the the Iron Curtain. I grew up with that phrase, in, you know, in the 50s. I'm a little older than well, maybe a lot older than you. <laughs> uh, I wonder how, you know, the phrase Iron Curtain, Churchill used that phrase, the Iron Curtain, and you say something about Britain's loss of India and Egypt, because they were on top of the world. They were, the sun never set on the British Empire. Ha! <laughs> um, it led to the creation of the Iron Curtain. How did How did that come to be? What was its purpose, and in what ways, as you say, has an iron curtain descended on America? I'm real curious about that. Uh, once again, the the cost of warfare. We have to remember that yes, the, you know, the Soviet Union defeated the Third Reich in World War II, but uh, the Soviet 
nation paid paid an incredible price. They they lost somewhere oh, yeah. between 25, 25 and twenty eight million people fighting the Germans in in World War Two. So, uh, you know, from the Soviet perspective, uh, their their basic their basic thinking after World War Two was this: we we deserve we deserve to dominate Eastern Europe. Right. You know, we deserve we you know we deserve uh-huh. to dominate countries like like Czechoslovakia, you know, like Hungary, like East Germany, you know, that, that we, we need this buffer zone. Uh, and because we have been invaded and we, we, we were invaded by Napoleon in 1812, the French, we were invaded by Germany in 1914. We were invaded by Germany again in 1941. And we are, we are not going to allow this to happen again. Uh, we are also, uh, facing, a dire economic times, and we are going to take this territory. We are going to dominate it. We're going to put it. You know, Winston Churchill, of course, said basically what they did is they put they put Eastern Europe behind an iron curtain. Right. Well, that was that was the way we viewed it. The United States and Britain, we saw it as you know this is the Soviet Union. Uh, they they are not allowing free elections in these countries. They are militarily dominating yeah. these countries. They, they, they said that they would not do this, uh, in, in, you know, various, you know, this is, this is Joseph Stalin mm-hmm. being a, a ruthless dictator. And of course there's truth to that as well. Oh yeah. Uh, absolutely. That is, you know, Stalin was a ruthless dictator, uh, much more so than, than Putin. Uh, so, um, so you can, you can see historically speaking, you can see how this iron curtain came about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what I meant, what I meant, you know, right. obviously, um, I, I use that phrase to evoke this idea that the that the United States, with with our constant pursuit of wars overseas, with with the with the trillions of dollars that we've spent on war, uh, you know, the, the the Brown University Cost of War project has has shown that our war that the the, the wars on terror especially Iraq and Afghanistan have have a will cost this country roughly eight trillion dollars uh, that that we ourselves uh, in a way uh, an iron curtain is is falling on our empire uh, as well uh, and and I and I and I use that phrase really just to get people to think that that you know we always think well iron curtain you know that's that's only the bad people like like the Soviet mm, Union mm-hmm. is Joseph Stalin. Uh, that's not America. Mm. You know, America is the lamp of liberty, as mm. I mentioned at the beginning of my piece. Uh, but but what I see, not that the lamp of liberty has been extinguished entirely, no. But but uh, that it has been greatly dimmed by this iron curtain. It has, and it's really for those of us who care and believe we are not powerless, as the they want us to believe we are powerless. Uh, it's it's painful. It hurts, and we care about this, and we're going to do something about this. For those who again may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. I'm very pleased to say our guest today is retired Lieutenant Colonel William Astori, who's uh, writing, uh, who's seen it, been a military uh, person, was there for 20 years, and we're writing about new. He wrote about new ways to see what we're doing here and there are better ways to do it than being so 
damn warlike. And he talks about the end stage of the American empire. Maybe that can be a good thing. And you talk about uh, the Soviet Union a little bit. Their experience, you cite their experience in Afghanistan, seeing it as decades of slow rot and overstretch before imploding. Yeah. How does that relate? What are the le the lessons for America? It seems pretty pretty clear. Well, you know the the, the Soviet Union was was nowhere near as rich of, of an mm. empire as as the United States. So, mm. but but basically, you know, the Soviet Union in 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 trying to keep up with the United States militarily, uh, and also getting involved in 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 it in a very wasteful war, its own wasteful war in Afghanistan. Uh, eventually, tipped the Soviet Union into uh, collapse. You know they could they could no longer sustain uh, this this military spending, and so the Iron right. Curtain fell. Uh, you know we we are a richer empire, uh, and so our our decline has has not been as precipitous. Ah. It has not been as rapid. But if we continue on this course of 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 huge war budgets and and constant spending, and of course, most dangerously of all, is this idea that we have to fight a new Cold War uh, now, you know, against Russia, and 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 then uh, most it seems like in Washington D.C. most people are spoiling for some kind of a conflict against China. Yes, even though even though China militarily. Uh, you know, China does not have a lot of overseas bases, very few. Uh, and China historically has been an Asiatic power, a regional power, uh, and is not posing any direct military threat uh, to the United States. In fact, why would China, why would China want to attack the United States? Uh, why would any country want to attack the United States? There's no country in the world more likely to bludgeon and burn you to death than the United States. You know, look back, look back historically. We are the only country that has dropped atomic bombs at Hiroshima right. and Nagasaki. Right. We burnt, we burned Japan out with incendiary bombs. We destroyed Tokyo, killing yes. 100,000 people yes. in 1945. Uh, we bombed Germany. Uh, we, we destroyed North Korea with bombing. Yes. We, we tried to, we tried to, I mean, I could go on and on. What country would want to attack the United States nah. and and bring that kind of fury down on them, right? So yeah. I don't think, I don't think, you know, China is posing any kind of an existential threat to us. Uh, and yet you hear in Washington, D.C. that we have to continue to spend more and more on the military because because of China. Uh, and that's it. You know, uh, they're developing hypersonic missiles or they're building a blue water Navy or maybe they're building more ICBMs or whatever. This is classic threat inflation. Mm. You know, we, we, mm. we saw it threat. The military industrial complex will always exaggerate threats mm. because that is the way that is the way they generate more spending, more and profit. Uh, more, uh, you think profit has something to do with the war budget? Mm -hmm, could be. Uh, interesting how China is, you know, they're our competitor economically. And what they're doing in Africa right now is they're building an infrastructure there. Gosh, what a concept, you know, helping the people there. 
and, and you know, we could be doing that. I suspect we have at least as much, uh, you know, monetary capability as they do. What about, I'm curious about this. What do you have to say about the treatment of people like Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, and Daniel Hale, especially in the case of Julian Assange? How are these examples, as you say, of an empire betraying its own justice system? Oh, absolutely. Because what, what you learn, what you learn from the treatment of, uh, you know, someone like Chelsea Manning, you know, if you if you if you make if you embarrass the empire, if, if you if you leak a videotape showing the the true face of war in in Iraq and the way that innocent people are being killed, uh, you go to prison and and you're tortured in solitary uh, confinement. So, uh, so you know, someone like uh, uh, Daniel Hale, uh, I, I I see you know I've written about Daniel Hale. I I actually uh, wrote to him in prison and and he was nice enough to respond to me. Uh, you know, he I see him as 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 a hero in a way, in, in the sense that that yeah, that he spoke out against uh, the drone warfare. And he, and he pointed out what what the what you don't hear in the mainstream media is is the fact that that probably three quarters of the people, if not more, uh, who are killed in drone strikes are, are, are innocents. Uh, there there you know, a lot of our drone strikes um do not hit the intended target. Uh, they're, they're often based on, on faulty uh, intelligence. It's often the case, particularly in Afghanistan, uh, that, um, that warlords would, would feed the United States uh, names of people uh, as, uh, as the enemy, as the Taliban or whatever, uh, and, and then we would go out and kill those people, and it turned out that the, it was actually just the, the rival of the warlord uh, and we were yeah. just doing the, 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 the dirty work for them. Uh, and, and then of course, Edward Snowden, uh, uh, he did, he did, he did our country a service in, in showing the, the overreach of, of the surveillance state, the illegality of the surveillance state. Uh, and, and yet, you know, we, we won't let him back in the country. Uh, uh, he, uh, yeah. he's an exile. Uh, in um, <laughs> in of all places, he, he had to find safe haven in Russia. Uh, so so um, you know, and it's just a shame because you know you have people like Hillary Clinton, uh, mm. who's like, well, you know, Edward Snowden needs to come back and he'll get a fair trial. And it's like, oh, you know, we all know that's total BS. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's, he's not going to get a fair trial, uh, and he is going to be thrown in prison uh, when he should have been. You know, he should have been pardoned. Uh, and, and yet no president talk about, talk about macho hmm. and talk about, you know, talk about having moxie. W- wouldn't it be great to have a president who, who actually had the confidence and moxie to pardon Edward Snowden, you know, to pardon, um, Daniel Hale, uh, and recognize the, the, the service that whistleblowers like that have, have done for, for democracy, yeah. but, but they never do. It's, it's so fascinating to talk about bravery and courage. You talk about bravery and courage. Those, Edward Snowden, I mean, that took some bravery and courage. And that, that's, uh, you know, something that, uh, you know, we allegedly value, but uh, boy, not with him, apparently. Uh, and people, you know, the, the uh, energy spent against people like that is just uh, amazing. And as you say, history's lessons can be brutal. Empires rarely die well. And you ask, 
What will it take to convince Americans to turn their backs on empire and war before it's too late? End of quote. There are alternatives to militarized nationalistic empire. Better alternatives. They are out there. What what I, I urge people to go to the website EisenhowerMediaNetwork.org. EisenhowerMediaNetwork.org. It's it's wicked impressive, as we say here in New England. Uh, <laughs> so, what 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 will it take? What can people do? And I, I think I think the majority of people are against this, uh, you know, militaristic nationalistic uh, empire stuff. It's just, you know, the loud voices are from the far right, uh, and and but I think maybe eventually over time, you know, there are better ways of doing things. Your well, I, yeah, there's there's so many ways to answer that. I, I, I think certainly part of it is just, you know, get educated. Uh, part of it is is don't don't vote for uh, warmongers. Really? You know, <laughs> seek out, you know, seek, seek out third party candidates. Uh, seek out somebody like Cornell West mm. uh, or Marianne Williamson or RFK Jr. Just somebody mm. who is actually willing to criticize you know, the military industrial complex. And then, you know, but we can't put the faith in that change is going to come from the top down. No, it's more likely to come from the bottom up. Yes. Which means, you know, we, we need to protest. You know, we, we need right. to have our voices heard. And sadly, uh, you would think in a democracy that, that we would be able to protest easily. But as we see with the militarization of the police and, and extensive use of propaganda and surveillance in our country, that protest is becoming uh, increasingly difficult, mm, which in a, in a way, yeah, which in a way points to the fact that maybe the powers that be are actually a little bit worried about yeah, people like, exactly. like us. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so I urge them all to, to, uh, to listen to your show. Uh, and, and if, I mean, if they want to read more of my stuff, I, I have a, I have a, a site called Bracing Views at Substack, uh-huh. uh, and and so I I ask that they that that they go there uh, and just reflect on uh, the the way in which our our country uh, is is really the promise of our country is is great and and I think I don't think America is is beyond right. saving right. Uh, I I truly do do not think that uh, and so and so. And so I think it's up to us ultimately uh, to to do whatever we can, whatever talents we have, to bring true change. It can be done, and as somebody said, politics and protest both necessary, neither sufficient. And there are people working within the Democratic Party. I can tell you, uh, and and you know, at the grassroots level, it's it's more. It's not the same as the DNC level, I'll tell you. Uh, and, right. and, we're, and the uh, progressives, liberals, are making some progress there. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Very informative, and uh, let's get the word out there. We can, we can do it. We can do it. We yeah, thanks, thanks so much, Bert, for having me. Thank you. I up above my eyes could clearly see The Statue of Liberty sailing away to sea If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, 
Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.